But I think first, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to to gather together, to sing to you and of you, to pray to you, to read your word, to proclaim who you are and what you've done. It seems right, Lord, that we, we do thank you for our pastor and his family. We thank you that you have seen fit to set in this place a man of God who takes seriously the word of God. That he has the courage to teach hard truths and that he does so with humility. We recognize that that's not automatic. Not everybody gets that and and you've blessed us with that. So we thank you for him and we ask that you bring him back safely to us, uh, he and Chris, and that they would just be restored and and that we uh, look forward to welcoming them home. We come to you with a certain amount of fear and trembling. We recognize that your truth is perfect. However, we're just not that smart. We see dimly now what one day will be made clear And we acknowledge the fact that our our flesh, that not yet sanctified part of us, is is always working to warp and bend and and misshape the Jesus of the scriptures into a Jesus of our own imagination, a Jesus that is made in our own image. And we just cry out that you would protect us from that. We also come to you with a confidence, not a confidence in our own wisdom or understanding, but a confidence in a God who's going to vindicate his gospel. We come to you with confidence that you are a promise-keeping God and you have promised that he who seeks will find. And here we are, Lord, to seek you, to seek out who you are and what you've done. And we just lift all this up in the name of Jesus. Amen. So here's the way I usually do this. This is what I usually tend to do. I like to give you an idea of where we're going. This is where we're headed. These are the stops on the way. And that way you can follow along, recognize those landmarks, and and you know where we're going to end up. So where we're going this morning is up on the mountain. We're going to head up to the mountain right there with Moses, because God is going to encounter Moses and us there. He's going to pass before us, and he's going to declare some things about himself. And we should recognize that we live in a culture that not just doesn't particularly care for who God is and what he's done, but hates who God is. That We're strangers in a strange land. And as we go through this list of things that God gives us about himself, I want you to see that if these things are true, and I'm going to say that they are, there's no greater expert on who God is than God, then it can lead us to only one place. There's no way around it. We must end up at the cross and the gospel of Jesus Christ if God is who he says he is. Next week, Lord willing, my plan is to 
talk about, okay, if this is who God is and this is what his gospel is, then what are the ramifications of that? What then? How should we respond to that? But that's next week. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Exodus 34. And as you turn there, I want to tell you about a man named Christian Smith. Christian Smith was a professor of sociology at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He has since moved to become the professor of sociology at Notre Dame. I believe he's still there, but I could be wrong about that. And Mr. Smith did a study. It's called the National Study of Youth and Religion. It was a big study. It involved thousands and thousands of 13 to 17-year-olds. And what Mr. Smith wanted to identify was not just how somebody labeled themselves, but what do they believe? What do they really believe? When we start to dig deep and get into the weeds of specific doctrines, what do these teenagers really believe? And what he came up with after this very broad and, and extensive study was that by and large, as a general rule, American teenagers, there were, are exceptions, of course, but by and large, they believe something called moralistic therapeutic deism. And Mr. Smith defined it this way. If moralistic therapeutic deism had a website and they had a what we believe page, these are the five things that they would put on that page. Brace yourself. It's not good. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. So far, so good. Hopefully they go deeper than that. They don't. So here we go. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. I don't know any other way to say it. This is a man-centered, God-is-my-co-pilot, butler, personal assistant theology that is totally incompatible with what we find in this. They can't both be right. It just doesn't work that way. Listen to Dr. Albert Moeller's response to the study. He says this, the, mora- the moralistic therapeutic deism that these researchers identify as the most fundamental faith posture and belief system of American teenagers appears in a larger sense to reflect the culture as a whole. Clearly, this generalized conception of a belief system is what appears to characterize the beliefs of vast millions of Americans, both young and old. So we're not just picking on the kids. It's not just the teenagers. After all, they learned this from somebody. And they learned it from their culture. They learned it from their parents and their grandparents. We're all in this. This defines what Americans in general really do believe. And moralistic therapeutic deism just doesn't work with a big, glorious, powerful, sovereign God. So let's look at the text. What does God say about himself? Exodus 34, starting in verse 5. 
the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation." So what we see here, amongst other things, are six attributes of God. And I want to talk about those just briefly. You could do whole sermons on each one of these, but we'll just cover them briefly. Number one, God's mercy. By the way, if you're here with mom and dad and you're, on, you're going to ride home with mom and dad, and if you, like at least one person in this room I know will, going to be asked what was the sermon about, these would be good things to jot down and remember. This will probably be on the test. Number one, God's mercy. God's goodness to those in misery and distress. God is not indifferent to pain and suffering. Ever. Psalm 103.8 The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That should sound familiar. Matthew 9.36 is talking about Jesus. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. Now here's the problem. We could read something like that and we could go, yeah, you see, he does have mercy on on me because the central goal of life is for me to be happy and feel good about myself. And I stand before you today saying, no, no. That's not why he has mercy on you, first and foremost. He has mercy and bestows mercy primarily in order to demonstrate his character to all of creation so that he might be more glorified. Number two, God's grace. That's God's favor toward those who deserve only punishment. And grace is, we need to understand this, in a very real sense, the opposite of fairness. If grace was given, because in some sense that's the fair thing to do, it isn't grace anymore. Romans 11.6 But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. When we talk about grace, we should never respond with those three words that if you're the parent of more than one kid, you've heard. That's not fair. That's not how grace works. And as soon as you go to that's not fair, you're talking about something other than grace. Exodus 33, 19. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he's extending gracious to whomever he chooses because he's demonstrating his character before all of creation in order to gain more glory for himself. This is the opposite of a man-centered theology. 
It's not because humans are just too big to fail. And let's be honest. This kind of rubs up against us, doesn't it? Not like the way a puppy rubs up against us, the way sandpaper rubs up against us. There's some part of us that just doesn't like this. Number three, God's patience. It's God's withholding of punishment toward those who sin over a period of time. So you may have heard this, that some people have had earthly father figures who were not patient. But that's not who your heavenly father is. Your heavenly father does not explode off the couch and terrorize you for the rest of the night because you walked in and spilled something on the carpet. Repeatedly, we see that God is described as slow to anger. He's slow to anger. He's slow to anger. Numbers 14, 18, Psalm 86, 15, Psalm 145, 8, Jonah 4, 2. God is slow to anger. God is patient with sinners. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.16, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Number four, God's love. God eternally gives of himself to others. So before Genesis 1-1, before there was such a thing as time, there was perfect love shared between the three persons of the Trinity. And now God shares that perfect love with his people. Psalm 36, 5 through 8 says this, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. Oh, how precious your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Number five, God's faithfulness. God will always do what he has said and fulfill what he has promised. And let's be honest, this is foreign to us. For those of us who've been alive a little while, when people promise things to us, you just kind of have to say, okay, we'll see. Because that's how human beings who are sinners are. But that's not the way it works with God. He is perfectly faithful. He always keeps his promises. Numbers twenty three nineteen. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? 2 Thessalonians 3.3 3 says, But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Number six, God's wrath. He said, in our passage it says, I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. There's sort of by implication there a few of his attributes. I'm going to call it God's wrath. You have wrapped up in that God's holiness, God's justice, and God's wrath. We're going to sort of settle into God's wrath, because apparently somebody's getting punished. 
God intensely hates all sin. In Sunday school the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about God's wrath against the people of Sodom. Their sin was great. The outcry to the Lord about their sin was great, and God had had enough. And he wipes them off the face of the earth. You know, there's what, seven and a half billion people on earth? You can travel the earth as long as you want to. You're not going to run into any of the descendants of Sodom. You can't go visit modern-day Sodom. You can't go visit the ruins of the ancient city of Sodom. It's gone. Exodus 32, 9 through 10. Now we have to understand here that this is after God's chosen people who were delivered out of Egyptian slavery, 400 years of Egyptian slavery, after they witnessed God humiliate utterly all of those false Egyptian gods and demonstrate his power. They take the gold that God delivered from the Egyptians into their hands, they pull it together, and they create a golden cow, and they say, behold, this is the God who delivered you. And this is how God responds. Exodus 32, 9 and 10. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. This is after he nuked Sodom. Now, did he decide to do that? No, but Moses needs to understand. God's no joke. He's not going to be conned by man. He hates Sin with the white-hot passion of a thousand suns. It's kind of like if you, if you were a kid and at some point you had a brother or a sister and they, they got a little older, they start to see some flaws in their parents, they start to become convinced, you know, I think I m- know more than these people. I'm not sure there's anything they can do about it if I go to X, Y, and Z. They get a little puffed up and they don't tiptoe across the line they dive across the line with both feet and they say something. And there's either the graveyard silence or, or maybe all the other kids go, oh. And then what happens? Mom or dad, if you're standing in close proximity to the offending kid, get out of the way. That's what God's saying to Moses. Moses. Get out of the way. Is it because he's going to blow up the nation of Israel like Sodom? No, it's because Moses needs to understand. This is, how, this is my response to sin. My wrath is a real thing. Don't write that out of the Bible. So God is these things. He truly is these things. He is merciful, gracious, patient, loving, faithful. And he also burns with anger and he will punish the guilty. There's no loophole to that. If you are guilty, punishment is coming. That's it. But it kind of seems like these things are going in opposite directions, doesn't it? How do we reconcile that? 
How do we process this and understand who God is if he's merciful and gracious, but he's going to punish the guilty? How does that work? Well, there are a few pitfalls we don't want to fall into, and there's some places that would be tempting to go, and I want to warn you against that. I'm going to give you three. One thing we could easily start to do is we could start to convince ourselves, well, you know, maybe, maybe there's a good enough. Maybe, maybe some people are good enough. They make the grade. No, they're not A+, plus, but they're C+, plus, B-. Minus, and that's going to be good enough for God. Maybe, maybe God just kind of sees that. He says, oh, well, you know, that's not bad. Everybody makes some mistakes. Don't worry about it. You know what? You're not Hitler. This is really popular today, just like it was really popular 2,000 years ago. And I know it was because Paul had to deal with this. In Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18, and I want you to understand so we can put it in our context. He's going to refer to the Jews and the Gentiles, so they would have interpreted that as the good people and the bad people. This is what he says. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. By the way, most of that he's quoting Psalm 14. So apparently, People wanted to want to run to this today. They wanted to run to it in Paul's day, and they wanted to run to it in David's day. And that's not going to get us there. So we don't want to go there. God doesn't grade on a curve, it turns out. Matthew 5.20, if anything, it's about to get worse. Matthew 5.20, Jesus says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's kind of a bummer. So if we, if we could identify, if we could pick out whichever one of you out there is the most godly, holy person in the room, and we found your holiest day and the most godly moment of your holiest day, you're not going to make the Pharisee JV team. I'm sorry. I mean, they're counting their steps and they're tithing from their spice rack and they're memorizing books of the Bible. The point is, this is a bar you're not going to clear. Second theological tar pit we dare not fall into. We could start to convince ourselves, well, well, you know, maybe some part of God is angry. But there's some other part of God that isn't angry at all. That part of God is just soft and loving and forgiving and has no wrath. Well, there's a problem with that also. And this is another attribute of God. It's not one of the six. This is bonus. It's God's unity. 
But sometimes it may be called God's simplicity. That sounds kind of funny to us because we don't usually call people simple and we're not going to call God simple. We'll use unity, God's unity. God's unity means God is not divided into parts, yet we see different attributes of God emphasized at different times. There's no part of God that is absent mercy or wrath. The three persons of the Trinity are in perfect unity with one another. You ever watch the nature shows about the lions? And you see this big 400, 500 pound male lion. The thing's just ferocious, right? And it's laying there in the hot afternoon in the shade of a tree. And here come its little cubs. And they're jumping on him and they're pawing at him and they're stalking his tail as it wags back and forth and pounce on it. And he's careful with them, right? He's gentle with them. He doesn't roar his ferocious roar. He probably kill him of a heart attack, right? But what happens if the hyenas come over the hill? He gets up, he sort of flexes into his war posture, and and the hyenas are going to run, or that's going to be it for the hyenas. He's going to roar this ferocious, ground-shaking roar. Did the lion change its mind? Did the lion suffer some sort of multiple personality disorder? The lion was ferocious with the cubs. And if the lion goes off and tears the hyenas to pieces, he's still that gentle father to the cubs. He's all of that. Third one, we don't want to go here either. We could easily start to say, maybe, okay, maybe God was really angry, but now he's not. And usually it's expressed this way. You know, the God on the left side of the Bible is angry and he's killing people. But the God on the right side of the Bible, well, he, he wouldn't get angry. He would never do that. That Old Testament God, whew, man. But the New Testament God would never say anything to offend me. This doesn't work either because of God's immutability, which is a fancy word for God's unchangeableness, which is a fancy word for God does not change. That's not how he works. God is unchanging in his being, perfections, purposes, and promises, yet God does act and feel emotions, and he acts and feels differently in response to different situations. The other problem with this Old Testament, New Testament thing is, I mean, that's just not in the book there. God is merciful and gracious in the Old Testament. Ask Lot. Ask Hagar. Ask Rahab. Ask Ruth. And God is not going to clear the guilty in the New Testament. You could ask Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, but they're dead because God killed them immediately in the New Testament. You could read almost any of Revelation. He seems angry. New Testament. And this is the danger of sort of falling into this thing. We can start to say, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. Unhitch yourself from that. Don't unhitch yourself from the God of the Old Testament. If you do, you are now unhitched from the God of the New Testament. 
because it's the same unchanging God. So God is merciful, gracious, patient, abounding in love. He is faithful. God does forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin, but he will not clear the guilty. What do we do with this? How do we understand this? Because I got to be honest, when I hear he will not clear the guilty, I feel like I might be in a little bit of trouble. I'm thinking maybe I should be worried. I know my Bible. Proverbs 17, 15 says, he who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Well, uh-oh. And then if we're not confused enough, Romans 4, 5 says this, and to the one who does not work but, leaves, but believes in him, that would be God, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Well, what in the world? What are we doing here? If we're not careful, it almost sounds like the Bible contradicts itself. How does this work? How can God simultaneously be all of these things? There's only one way we can make all this sort of jive together. There's only one way that God's wrath and God's mercy can intersect. There's only one place we can go, and that's the cross. But how does that work? How does Jesus' death on the cross make it possible to justify the wicked? 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Did you get that? That's huge. That's the gospel in one verse. No one does good, not even one. I am not good. I love you. Brace yourself. You are not good. But for those who are in Christ... The guilt and the shame of their sins was imputed to, was placed upon the spotless, sinless Lamb of God. And all of the Father's wrath for those who were in Christ was poured out on his Son. All of it. Not some of it. All of it. And he was crushed and killed under the weight of his Father's wrath. Isaiah 53, verses 6 and 10. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. The sentence due to God's people has been served. The sins of God's people have been atoned for. And this is the beautiful part of this. One day, if you are in Christ and you know him and he knows you, he is going to point to you and he's going to say, this one belongs to me. This one belongs to me, and I'm going to pronounce verdict on this one, and my verdict is not guilty. Is that not good news? 
That's why we call it the gospel. It is good news. Why would God do this for us? Is it because we are the center of all things and the central goal of life is for us to be happy and feel good about ourselves? No. He does this in order to purify a people for his own possession, for the sake of his own great name, so that he might be more glorified. Let's pray. Lord, we stand in awe of who you are and what you have done. All of your attributes are infinitely magnificent. Your gospel is beautiful. May all honor and glory be yours. Amen.